Good morning, everyone. I'm going to just want to start off by saying I'm going to try really hard not to waste your time this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to be focusing in on belief. Belief's a pretty big biblical idea. Uh, the Bible kind of has two halves. The first half of the Bible is everything that happens uh, before Jesus is born. We call it the Old Testament. And then with the New Testament, we get the life of Jesus. In the first four books of the New Testament, we call them the Gospels, just a fancy word that means good news. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the story of the good news of Jesus. Most scholars say, despite the order that these books show up in our Bible, the first of the Gospels actually to be written is the Gospel of Mark. So let's look at the first thing Jesus says in the first gospel. It's on the screen. Back it up one slide. There we go. Let's read this out loud together. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Hopefully, if you were here last week, this verse seems a little familiar to you. One of the reasons scholars think Mark was written first is because it seems like Matthew and Luke kind of copy and paste stuff from Mark into their gospel. Last week, we looked at Matthew 4.17, the exact same thing that Jesus says we focused on the word repent. Today, we're focusing on the word believe. This, this is the first thing Jesus says in the gospel. He's 30 years old. Do you know any 30-year-olds? Try to picture, maybe some of you have kids, sons or daughters who are 30. Uh, maybe you work with a 30-year-old. Maybe you have friends or people in your neighborhood who are 30. Everybody got a picture of a 30-year-old in their mind? What would you think if tomorrow morning that 30-year-old says to you, I'm quitting everything and I'm going to seminary, I'm going to become a pastor, or I'm going to go out on the mission field, I'm going to spend the rest of my life telling everybody about God? For some of you, depending on who that 30-year-old is, that might be a little unbelievable for you, right? So here's Jesus at 30 years old. He's up to this point in his life, just been hanging out in Nazareth, working with his dad, uh, Joseph, at his dad's carpenter shop, and now everything changes. He's going to spend the rest of his life telling people about God, and a part of the message, a big part of the message that Jesus wants people to believe is that he's God. And a lot of people found that unbelievable. Fast forward five chapters to Mark chapter 6. Jesus has been doing ministry now, and he's healing people, and miracles are happening, and he's teaching incredible things, and great crowds are following Jesus. It's becoming quite an attraction, quite raising quite a, a ruckus. And now he gets back to his hometown, Mark chapter 6. Jesus left that part of the country, returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. They've been hearing all of this. And now the local homegrown guy shows up and they want to check out what's this Jesus guy all about. Here's what happens in verse 2. The next Sabbath he began, Jesus began teaching in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. They asked where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles. And this happens pretty much everywhere Jesus goes. Everything he says, everything he does, there are people who are amazed by Jesus. They want to hear more. It causes them to ask, who is this guy? And at the same time, everything Jesus does and everything he says, there are people who are confused by what Jesus is all about. And we see that in this verse uh, passage too. In verse 3, it says, then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. In other words, we know this guy. We know his parents, 
We've heard stories his brothers and sisters have told about him. You wouldn't even believe what they say about this guy. And this always happens when you get together like this and you haven't seen someone since they were a little kid. Someone will say, I used to babysit you. I used to change your diapers. Somebody's probably saying that about Jesus. And then look how this verse ends. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Which shouldn't surprise us too much. I mean, think of that 30-year-old that you were thinking about earlier. If all of a sudden they were to say, they are the Messiah, they're the Savior, they're the Son of God, we would probably scoff and not believe them, right? The passage ends, Jesus says, you know, a prophet is without honor in his hometown. And then it goes on to say, because of their unbelief, he, Jesus, couldn't do any miracles among them, except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their unbelief amazed at their unbelief. There's not a whole lot that surprises Jesus. There's not not a whole lot that amazes him, but there's at least two things we see in the Gospels that are amazing to Jesus. Here's one of them. He's amazed at their unbelief, so much so he could not do any miracles among them. I don't want to talk about that too much today. Uh, We'll talk about it Wednesday night at 6.30, Pastor's Bible Study. You can come and we'll dig into, I thought Jesus was supposed to be God. Why can't he do any miracles? We're not going to talk about it today, though. Um, So speaking of Wednesday night, did you know there's a lot of stuff happening on Wednesday nights at this church? From 5.30 to 7 o'clock, there's a meal that is served, and then there's ministry happening for children and students and adults. And if your family is at all like my family, I mean, week after the school gets out, it's just crazy running people the practices and activities and then trying to get to church and when do we have time to eat? So we got the meal covered for you. Come and eat here. And our theme this year at Hope, to know and to be known, it's a great way to get connected, to get to know some people, sit down and and share a meal with them and then come to Pastor's Bible Study and we'll talk about why Jesus can't do miracles, but we're not going to talk about it today. Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. Think about when he's on the, the lake with his disciples and a storm pops up. The disciples are freaking out. What does Jesus say? O ye of little faith. Sometimes he's amazed at the unbelief of people. Other times Jesus is amazed at how much faith people have. And often it's the faith of foreigners, Gentiles, sinners, women, people who would typically have been overlooked and nobody would have noticed them, but Jesus always noticed. And not only did he notice, but he called them out, made sure other people noticed. O ye of great faith, go in peace, your faith has made you well, that sort of thing. Sometimes Jesus is amazed at unbelief, sometimes he's amazed at belief. But part of what we start to see when we read through the scripture, Jesus cares deeply about belief. It's really, really important. We see it all through the gospels, and and the gospel where we see it the most is John's gospel. 83 different times in John's gospel, the word believe shows up. And I want us to read this verse kind of at the end of John's account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He's saying, here's what to believe, but also why it's important what we believe. Read this with me. These are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, You will have life by the power of his name. These are written, all these accounts of the miracles and the healings of Jesus, these are written, all these parables, all these, this great teaching that Jesus, the master teacher, helps us figure out how to be in relationship and how to understand God. 
Why is it all written, John? It's written so that you can believe, and by believing, you will have life by the power of his name. What we believe is important, and why we believe what we believe is really important. What we believe is closely connected to how we end up living our life. What we believe is closely connected to the kind of life we actually experience. That clip that we watched at the beginning of the message is from a TV show called Mad Men. It's about an advertising agency in New York City in the 1960s. Uh, the main character is Don Draper, and he is an advertising whiz. And you see a little bit of it in that clip that we watched. You see how creative he is. He has the ability to tell a story. He has the ability to make a, a sales pitch. And the genius of Don Draper is he can do all of that in a relatively short amount of time. And, and that's kind of the point for advertising, right? Maybe you've got one page of copy in a magazine to communicate out your message, or you have a 30-second TV spot. You have to be able to very quickly and clearly and concisely communicate your message. And people, companies were willing to pay Don Draper and his, his advertising agency all kinds of money because of their ability to do just that. When it comes to faith, when it comes to what you believe about God, are you able to quickly and clearly and concisely communicate what you believe and why? Have you ever heard of, of this phrase, elevator pitch or uh, elevator speech? The idea is if you're on an elevator with a potential employer or if you're on an elevator uh, with a potential client, can you sell yourself or your product in just a couple of flights on, riding on an elevator? When it, when it comes to our faith, I wonder if maybe the Apostles' Creed is kind of the elevator pitch for Christianity. In a real short and concise way, here's the summary of what we believe. Now remember, my Bible is a thousand pages, something like that, depending on you know, how bad your eyes are. You might have a lot more pages. Anyway, um, how, do you, how do you summarize all of this in a 30-second kind of deal? And remember, the creeds were written early on uh, in the Roman Empire in church history. Sociologists say 5 to 10% of the population could read. So over 90% of all people could not read. Even if they had access to the scriptures, which most of them did not, they wouldn't have been able to read it anyway. So the creeds were de developed to help everybody understand, here's what we believe. And here's why what we believe matters. Here's the central focus of what we believe. So that's the Apostles' Creed. Let's stand and let's recite the Apostles' Creed together, but let's do it kind of with our best Don Draper sales pitch, kind of. You think we can do that? All right, let's try that. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. So we're going to dig into the Apostles' Creed, but before we talk about what is in the Apostles' Creed, did you notice what is not in the Apostles' Creed? 
For example, what does the Apostles' Creed teach us about baptism? That's when we always re recite the Apostles' Creed. So what does the Apostles' Creed teach us about baptism? Should we baptize infants? Is that okay? Or should we wait until they're old enough to make a profession of faith and that's when we baptize them? Should we sprinkle water on their heads? Is that how we baptize? Or should we full immersion, you know, put them under till they bubble? Is that the way? We're... <laughs> how are you supposed to do this? But Jesus, lots of things happen in his life and the uh, Creed tells us he's conceived, he's born, he crucified, died, buried doesn't mention his baptism, even though we know Jesus was baptized. What about confirmation? What's the creed teach us about confirmation? That's when we learn the creed, right, in confirmation class. Um, should confirmation be a two-year program or a three-year program? What would the creed tell us? Should it start in sixth grade or eighth grade? When do we actually confirm the kids who, who go through it? Do we do it the first weekend of May, which is the right time to do it, like we do it here at Hope, or is there some other time that we should do it? What about doctrinal issues, women in ministry, just war. What, pick a morality kind of debate of your choice, a theological debate of your choice. The creed's pretty silent on those sorts of things. There is a lot that is not in the creed. And what is not in the creed, I think, actually emphasizes the importance of what is in the creed. Martin Luther breaks the creed down into three articles. Article 1, I believe in God the Father. Article 2, I believe in Jesus Christ. Article 3, I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's the Trinity. When you look at the creed and you read through what it is that we actually are saying that we believe in, what are we professing our faith in? A triune God. The word Trinity never shows up in Scripture, but this idea of God showing up in three unique persons shows up all over the place. We believe in a God who is Trinitarian. We actually, our Bible reading for today from Ephesians 4, we see all three unique persons of the Trinity. And in our Bible reading, we see the centrality of unity. Let's read this verse together. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. So it's actually two verses. Read this with me. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. That's Paul's pounding home the idea of unity in that verse. Look how many times he uses the word one. Look how many times he uses the word all. I want you to understand that at the heart of what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ is this idea of unity. Where does he get it from? Gets it from his understanding of who God is. One God existing in three unique persons, and those three unique persons all have a unique role to play. Luther describes it as creation, uh, uh, redemption, and sanctification. Remember the old Adam Sandler character on Saturday Night Live, Cajun Man? Redemption, creation, sanctification. No, you guys didn't watch that. Anyway, um, so these three unique roles, there's a diversity in the Trinity, but the diversity doesn't lead to division. The diversity leads to unity. What the idea of the Trinity teaches us and what the Apostles' Creed then teaches us since it's focused on the Trinity is that God exists in community. God exists in community. And this is important because last week, what did we talk about? Loving our neighbor loving our community. God exists as community. If that's who we believe God is, if that's what we believe about God, that's going to impact how we live our lives in our communities. 
And Paul writes about that. Verse 3, make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. Every time I read that, I think of that Coca-Cola commercial from the 70s. I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. I'd like to buy the world a Coke. Uh, Or almost like hippies standing around a campfire singing Kumbaya. But this is really powerful. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. You got any relationships in your life these days where maybe the best word to describe it is conflict or division? Not necessarily unity. Could be in your family, could be at work, could be in your neighborhood. Are you making every effort to keep yourself united in the Spirit, binding yourself together with peace? Paul's pounding home. I mean, the church is starting out, and we've got all kinds of people from all kinds of different uh, places coming together and trying to figure out how to do this, and it was hard, 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 hard work. And so Paul's trying to, how do we, in the midst of all of our differences, in the midst of all the conflicts that pop up anytime people are together, how do we maintain unity? It was really important to Paul, but it's not his idea. It's important to him because it was Jesus' idea. In John chapter 17, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood because he's about to be arrested, tried, and killed. And he's praying in the garden. And the heart of his prayer is for unity. I pray that they, who's they? Well, he's talking about his disciples, but he also makes it clear, not just them, but everyone who will believe in me because of them. So he's praying for you and for me. I pray they will all be one just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe you sent me. What we believe matters, but why we believe it is just as important. Why does unity matter? Jesus says it has everything to do with belief. And when Christians are yelling at each other and arguing with each other and in disagreement with each other, it makes it really hard for people who are not Christians to think, yeah, I should join them. I should believe in their God. And maybe some of you are thinking, wait, 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 time out. I thought we're in this message series, here we stand, and we're leading up to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. You know, the Reformation when Martin Luther divided the church. That's not what Luther wanted to do. Luther didn't want to start the Lutheran church. He didn't want to leave the church that he was a part of. He wanted to reform it, and he got kicked out. There's this tendency that we have when people don't agree with us to disconnect. And so that was a really painful thing for Luther to go through. And so as he's writing the small catechism, as he's trying to figure out what is central to our faith? We've got the Ten Commandments, absolutely. We've got the Lord's Prayer. He also included the Apostles' Creed because he wanted us to have this reminder there's always going to be all sorts of things for us to disagree on, but it doesn't have to divide us. The Apostles' Creed and its focus on the Trinity is a reminder, here's what unites us. Yes, we're different. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, they've got different roles to play, but there's something that unites them. And the centrality of the creed, the centrality of the Trinity, here's part of what it teaches us. Being connected is more important than being correct. 
I'm not going to ask you to say it because I don't know if you believe it. <laughs> being connected, I don't know if I believe it. Being connected is more important than being correct. You look at our culture these days, seems like we got that one backwards, don't we? That clip from Mad Men, it started off with the motto of the United States, E Pluribus Unum, out of many one. It's not an American idea. It's a biblical idea. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And yet, generation after generation in church history, we focus more on being correct. Doctrinal purity, that's what we're after. It happened in Luther's day when he had the gall to suggest that maybe we were doing some things incorrectly in the church. We had a trial and we kicked him out of the church. And they said if they could kill him, go for it. And, and for centuries in church history, anyone who was not quite right theologically, maybe a little incorrect, we'll kill him. We'll, we'll put him to death. Now, thankfully, that doesn't happen anymore. Now we just you know, leave the church that we don't agree with, and we start our own church, start our own denomination. Did you hear about the Lutheran who was stranded on a deserted island for several years, and finally a ship comes by and sees this guy on the deserted island, and there's a rescue that takes place. So he's on the ship, and they're leaving that island where he'd been for all by himself for all these years, and the captain comes up to him. They're standing on the dock, kind of looking as the island is disappearing in the horizon, and the captain says, wait a minute. I thought you were here all alone all of these years. Why are there three huts on the beach? And the Lutheran says, well, the one over on the left, that's my house. The one over on the right, that's my church. And the captain says, okay, what about the one in the middle, that third one there? And the Lutheran says, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> Ask someone next to you if you need a little bit of help. Because this is our tendency. We have a tendency to disconnect if we think someone or something is incorrect. I tried talking about this a couple of months ago. We had that question and answer series, and I tried to draw a chart and talk about it. I'm not sure it was very helpful. We'll put the chart back up on the screen. There's lots of, lots of room for disagreement within Christianity, differences of opinion. Uh, this outside circle, we call it adiophora. Adiophora is just a fancy word that means no difference. There's no difference. What, what style of worship should we have? There's nothing commanded or prohibited about this in Scripture. Pick something and go with it. Doesn't make a difference. Uh, what about should pastors wear robes or not? Last week I preached with my zipper down. I think I'm going to start wearing a robe <laughs> more often. But actually, Scripture is actually silent on that one, right? What about communion? How often should we practice communion? Every time we get together, once a month, it's neither commanded nor prohibited. You pick something and you go with it. That's audiophora. Then that center circle here is doctrine. Doctrine, this is where we get things like women in ministry and baptism. What are our beliefs around this sort of thing? Our address is 36th Street here in Ankeny. There's four churches on 36th Street. They all love scripture. They all love Jesus. We, we, the Bible is our guide, our authority on how we make decisions. And almost everything we agree with. And there are some things that we have right and they... No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> there are some things we have differences of opinion on. That does not mean if we have different doctrinal opinions, they're not really Christians. 
There's lots of things we can have differences of opinion on and still be united. Dogma is what is it that unites us? What, what do we actually have to believe to still be Christians? And the more accurate term for that would be creedal dogma. To know what to believe and still be in to be a Christian, look to the creeds. It's the Trinity. The question is really, who do we worship? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. If you worship anything more than that, if you worship your tradition, if you worship anything less than that, that's not really Christian anymore. So what? Okay, great. It's almost like you're getting a seminary class in church history and that sort of thing. Who cares? How, how does it make a difference for your life? I think there's a couple of ways. Some of you, some of you, have come from churches where you experienced all kinds of conflict. And it was really painful for you. Guess what most church splits and church fights are about? Adiaphora and doctrine. Not dogma. Not the centrality of the Trinity. Uh, what, what about other relationships that we have in our life? Part of what this tells us is we have this tendency to say, there should really be a lot more in that center circle. And, and we use this as a way of, of dividing, but what the Trinity and what the Apostles' Creed tells us is, let's keep it focused on what is at the heart of all of this. And again, I'm not saying, please don't hear me saying, being correct doesn't matter. Of course that matters. It's just not the starting place. Being connected is more important than being correct. And if our fighting and debating and arguing is damaging relationship, then we have to reconsider what is it we're actually fighting for. This is going to impact, this is going to shape who we are as a church and how we carry out our mission as a church. So let's remind ourselves, what's our mission? We'll put it up on the screen, read this with me. Reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. One more time. Reach out to the world around us and share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. But what if I'm reaching out to someone and I discover along the way that they voted for the wrong person? Being connected is more important than being correct. Well, what if I'm reaching out to that woman that I see at the park, that mother, every time we go to the park and my kids play with her kids, but then over the course of conversation I find out she has a very different parenting strategy than I have. Being connected is more important than being correct. What if I reach out to my coworker and discover that they took credit for my idea and the boss is going to reward them? Being connected is more important than being correct. What if my son or daughter starts dating someone or marrying someone that I can't stand? Being connected is more important than being correct. And I know it's hard for some of you to hear. It is hard for me to hear because I'm the person in our house who knows the right way to load the dishwasher. <laughs> and nobody else seems to know the right way to load the dishwasher. Being connected is more important than being correct. This is at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, what the Trinity teaches us. The starting place. The start. Another way to think of it. Would you rather be right or in relationship? So, if this is at the heart of what it means to be followers of Jesus, what does it mean for the other relationships in our life? How's this going to impact your relationship with your spouse, 
Because some of you hear from your spouse on a pretty regular basis, why do you insist on being right all the time? And it's hurting the relationship. How's it going to impact your relationship with your kids, parents and children, friendships? This is, this is a hard one for us, but it's really important for us. I, I would love to see the church kind of leading the charge in this country saying, we can gather together with people who are very different from us, who think very differently from us, but we can be united about, around something. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. So, Lord, I think we have some confessing to do, or at least I do. I confess that I like to be right. And a lot of times, in my competitive nature, I just want to win the argument. I just want to win the debate. And the reality is sometimes I lose the relationship in the process. And so I pray for me and I pray for all of us that you would give us hearts that are humble, that you would help us to continue to look to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, giving, receiving, just this beautiful, harmonious flow. And I pray that you would also help us to remember <laughs> none of us understands the Trinity. It's, there's something mysterious about that which should also humble, enough, humble us enough to say, maybe there are some things that I maybe think I'm right about, I maybe think I'm correct about, but maybe I just don't know. So give us humble hearts, give us ears to listen when we're in conversation, not to just be planning our next sort of strategic statement. And most of all, Lord, continue to build us up as a community, as a people uh, who love our neighbors and who love you. In Jesus' name, amen.